Well, here we are in the fourth Sunday of the Easter season, here again, uh, worshiping online, because as we all know, we're still in the grips of a global pandemic and sort of forced to do everything by distance. And, and I wonder still, you know, I asked this question four weeks ago at our Easter service. I asked, you know, how you doing? And, and I talked about the various responses I got at the time. And I'll ask it again today. How are you doing with all this? Like, how do you feel about where we're at right now. My guess is, and I have some anecdotal evidence to back this up from conversations I've had with folks, is that however you felt four weeks ago may not be the way that you feel today. You may have even noticed in the midst of all the uncertainty and unpredictability that our life seems to have right now that you're waffling back and forth between different kinds of emotions. And there's a good reason for that. The Dr. David Kessler suggests that the nation is going through something he calls collective grief. In an article for the Harvard Business Review, he talked about the various stages of grief that one goes through and that's been detailed in various books and articles. He says the stages aren't linear and may not happen in order. It's not a map, but it does provide some scaffolding for this unknown world. And then he lists sort of the five stages that come with grief. First, there's, there's anger. Or, excuse me, first there's denial, uh, which we say typically a lot of in the very beginning. Well, the, you know, the virus is not going to affect us. It's no big deal. We don't have to worry about it. And then there's, well, there's anger. You're going to make me stay home? For how much longer do I have to stay home and not go out and do the things I want to do and work the way I want to work? And there's also, there's, there's sadness. Well, I don't know when this will all end, and I'm starting to really get down and out about it. There, there's bargaining. Okay, okay, if I social distance for, for long enough, that's going to make everything better, and we can go back to normal, right? I mean, we're going to go back to normal, and then there's the, typically the last one, which is where we want to be, which is acceptance. Okay, this is happening. I have to figure out how to proceed with my life as these things come at me. As I've thought about the various ways that, that me and, and people I've talked to have handled this time, it seems that this is an apt description. I've had all of these emotions and as I waffle back and forth between these things, I have found that I've had moments of being agitated and, and troubled, stirred up. Now, I talk to you about this today because in the text that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' disciples are quite troubled and agitated, and they have very good reason for being so. Right before we get to our passage, he's told the disciples that he's going to be betrayed that evening that he's going to be arrested. Just before the passage, he even tells Peter, I mean, sort of the, the head dude of the disciples, that even he, as loyal as he seems right now, by morning's end or by morning's dawn, will deny Jesus three times. They had a good reason to be troubled, to be agitated and, and anxious. And, and Jesus, the good shepherd of his sheep, knows where they're at. 
And so he turns their attention, he refocuses their attention to a different place, to a better place, to get them through the trouble and grief that they feel. So with that, by way of introduction, we will go to John chapter 14, verse 1. Let's do that, but before that, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would you would reset our minds as well, that you would refocus our attention on those things which ultimately matter so that whatever troubles and grief may come our way, we might be able to endure, be strong, and be good and loving neighbors. May you speak your word through my very imperfect and feeble lips this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John 14, verse 1 says... Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, I... We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. End of reading. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says to his people. Why? Well, first of all, as you look at the discourse here, the first reason he gives them for not allowing their hearts to be troubled is because he promises them he's preparing an eternal home for them. That's the first way Jesus eases our troubled hearts as we endure grief and difficulty. He says, guys, don't fret. Uh, Don't be anxious. I've got something coming for you that you can't even begin to fathom, that you cannot comprehend. It's going to be so good. Oh, how important it is to have our sights set on that reality if we would endure the griefs and troubles of our lives as well. 
I'm just being, uh, being real with you. I mean, too easily, too naturally, I find myself so often focused on temporal realities to the point where if I don't reset my mind on the bigger picture, I can just keep mentally paralyzed by it all. I mean, you watch the news long enough, folks, and you're going to get there. It's just the way things are. But when I read my Bible, and it really is throughout most of its pages, what I'm shown is a true and better home awaiting for me. I'm shown a true and better world that God is preparing for me as Jesus talks about here. One of my favorite passages emphasizing this truth is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There Paul writes in verse 16, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is is wasting away, true, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And look at what he says here. For this light, momentary affliction. That's how he describes life. It's a light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And how is this heavenly dwelling described by John in the book of Revelation as a place where God wipes away all tears from our eyes, where death shall be no more, where there shall be no mourning, no crying, no pain at all anymore. Oh, how we need our sights reset on that reality as we face whatever troubles us here. We need to have our hearts set on a true and better home. I'm talking here to people that are living in New York City. New York City is, of course, you all know this, incredibly transient. Most of you that I'm speaking to, with the exception of maybe a few, do not have New York City as your hometown. You move there from somewhere else, from all over the world. And you know that most of your neighbors are in the same boat. And as much as you may love living in the city, as much as the city might have grown on you and you might feel like it could be home, no matter who you are, there are times where we long for some sort of idealized home. Sometimes when we think back to where we grew up, even if it wasn't particularly great, there's some things about that that bring us a sense of comfort. Nostalgia comes sort of pouring over us, and we long for that thing. That's in every human being. We long for a true and better home. And yet you may have found that when you go back to that place that you look at as home, and maybe that you over-idealized in your mind, when you actually get a chance to go back there, you realize it never quite lives up to what you hoped it would be. It's because even as good 
or comforting as our homes may be here, we're all made for a better place, a true and better homecoming. Great writers and great film directors have picked up on this theme many, many times. I can't help but think of the movie Dunkirk in which soldiers are stationed on a battlefield not far from their home. And one of the lines that's said over and over again as they're facing the struggles is, you can see it from here, home. Or, or think of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You, you, know, you think about the hobbits Frodo and Samwise and the others being sent out of the Shire to go take care of the ring, to go have it destroyed. But what are they saying the whole time? They are longing to get back to the Shire. They're longing for home. Jesus comes to the disciples today, he comes to you and I, and he says, that home is what I'm preparing for you. That place that you're always longing for, but that you can never quite get to, that's what I'm making for you. I go to prepare a place for you, so let not your hearts be troubled. Well, as incredibly comforting as that may come to us, the disciples, it always seems like they're sort of in a little fog. I mean, they're, they're not always real clear on what he's talking about. And it appears at least Thomas here doesn't really understand that what Jesus is talking about is an eternal home, even though Jesus makes it pretty clear that it is. Because Thomas immediately asks, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like, where is this place that you're talking about? Is it the city of Atlantis? Is it, you know, is it the fountain of youth? Like, where, where are we going? And Jesus' response to Thomas is where we get our second reason for why our hearts need not be troubled. And that is because God has provided the way to the place. Jesus responds to Thomas's question with the famous words, Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think the way that we tend to quote this verse is almost as a defense of the exclusivity of Christianity. At least that's the way that I've heard it most of the time, and that's the way I've used it most of the time, and that's fair game. That's totally fine. Jesus is indeed making an exclusive truth claim. But sometimes we can sort of isolate a verse that we fail to see that there's more going on behind the scenes. This is actually a declaration of good news, of comforting news to his disciples. Let me try and break this down. What tends to be the case, uh, the presentation given by many different religions and worldviews out there, is that there is indeed going to be an afterlife. There's going to be, uh, you know, a place of paradise. And, and the way to get there is by you doing certain things. That's every religion, every worldview out there, even secular worldviews, that's basically, you know, the carrots hanging out there. And if you do enough, you can get the carrot. That's kind of the way it's presented. So you observe certain traditions and ceremonies, good enough. You obey certain commands and prohibitions, good enough. You are faithful enough. And just maybe when you die, you'll be given a ticket to paradise. That's kind of the standard view. That's what human beings just sort of assume is the way of the universe. But Jesus is different. 
Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to instruct you on the way. I'm not, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you the tips so that you can walk the right path. He says, I am the way. So to flesh out the metaphor, Jesus is literally saying, you stand on me and you will be brought to the place I'm preparing for you. You walk by faith in me and all do the rest. At the risk of sort of oversimplifying this thing, let me try and give an illustration. All the other religions out there, uh, the way to get to the place, to paradise, you got to climb some stairs, you got to jump some hurdles, uh, you, you got to climb a ladder, you got to do the things. And if you do all the things, then you get there. But it's, it's your effort. It is. It's, all, it's your effort. Jesus' picture here is more like, it's more like an escalator. It's or like one of those, you know, man mover things that you see at the airport. You know what I'm talking about? Like you just, you literally, you stand and it takes you all the way to the destination. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one who takes you. And therefore you do not have to let your hearts be troubled. And why is it we can know, by the way, that he really is the way? Well, he goes on to tell us. Because, because he is, in fact, God declaring this to you. Look at what he says as he's talking to his disciples. Philip sort of goes like, hey, I want to see the Father again. Not getting it. Not getting that Jesus and the Father are utterly united, that they are one. And so what does Jesus say? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let me break it down. Jesus is saying, you don't have to let your hearts be troubled because I am God himself telling you that it's all taken care of. All you need do is stand on the way, and I'll get you there. Let not your hearts be troubled in grief and difficult times. The third reason that Jesus says our hearts need not be troubled is because in the meantime, as we sort of set our focus on what's coming for us, and we praise God because he's provided the way for us. He also says, as we're standing on that path, as we're standing on Jesus, and he's taking us to the promised land, in the meantime, there will be many opportunities through which he's going to do good through us. This is the way he says it in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Yes, as, as the Christian, again, focusing on what's coming, that doesn't mean that they're putting their head in the sand until that day. No, no, Jesus says, there, 
I'm going to be doing things through you. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples, even though I won't be with you physically in the flesh, that I'm going to ascend to the Father, I am still going to give you purpose in this life. I am still going to do great things through you. In fact, he says even greater things than he did. Now, I'm going to flesh out what I think that means in just a bit, but I want to first talk about what kinds of things Jesus did that we, in turn, will do. Well, Jesus was a force for healing in his ministry, and so, too, his church will be a force for healing in our ministry. Jesus went out proclaiming the forgiveness of sins to the worst, and so, too, the church goes out proclaiming the forgiveness of sins even to the worst. Jesus comes loving his neighbor, the outcast, the needy, serving the poor, and so too the church goes out doing those works as well. By the power of his spirit, as we pray in his name that is aligned with his will, he will empower us to serve as we stand on the way to the place prepared for us. So I get the picture, it's like we're on this sort of man mover thing at the airport, and along the path, along the way, there's a person who needs something and we happen to have it. And so we pull it out of our pocket and like, here you go. And along the way, there's another person who needs something. And they, oh, here you go. I can provide that service. I've got a gift for that. You're still going on the way. Hey, you might even, just to continue with the analogy, you might even at times miss opportunities to serve people that needed you because of whatever. Maybe you were in sin. Maybe you did something wrong. Guess what? you're still moving on that path and there's still more opportunities to do great things. Now, what does he mean by greater here? I think sometimes uh, we get the impression that that must mean if we're really his disciples that we'll be able to do things like touch blind people and immediately cause them to have sight like Jesus did. But I don't think that that's the case here. I don't think that that is what he's saying. He might be saying that specifically to the apostles, but we know for church, throughout church history, the vast majority of Christians have not had such abilities. So what does he mean here? Well, I think what he means by greater is I think he means the sheer multiplicity of works that will be done as his church grows and grows and grows and spreads throughout the world. Just think about it. Jesus was one man with a few disciples in a small corner of the ancient world. Did a lot of great things there, but the church has spread all over the world and in big and small ways has impacted the entire world. That's what I think he means by greater. It's going to be the sheer multitude of, of things that his people are going to be able to accomplish by the power of his spirit. And yet I also want to point out that when he says greater here, I don't, I, I think we need to sort of steer clear from immediately thinking that this means like big, impressive stuff. It can be that. And it's awesome if it's, if it's that. I love that stuff. I mean, it's fun when it's big and impressive. But you know what it is most of the time? You know how like God is going to do greater things through you in this life? Most of the time... It's going to look like being a good employee that tries to work with integrity even when others around you might not be doing that. The greater works that he's going to accomplish through you is going to look like playing catch with your kids, 
reminding them of how much you love them. The greater works he's equipping you to, to do look like nurses and doctors doing everything they can to save a patient's life or to improve the quality of their life. The greater works look like something as simple as the grocery store worker stocking the shelves so that you can stay fed. The greater works look like you finishing your college class to the best of your ability. These things, they all look so simple. They all look fairly small. Many of us might even be prone to thinking that we're not all that special, that it's not that big a deal. But let not your hearts be troubled. Even in those little ways, God is working. God is accomplishing his will. Your neighbor is being served through your various vocations in life. As imperfectly as you do them, he is accomplishing his will. Greater works is he doing through even you. So let not your hearts be troubled, church. Jesus has prepared a place for you. He's literally the way for you. You only need stand on him. And as you stand on him in the way, he prepares good works for you to walk in for the good of your neighbor. Let not your hearts be troubled. Father, I pray that you indeed would encourage our hearts as we go back out into the world, however we're called to do that right now. I pray that you would help us to be encouraged and to not fall into despair. Father, we thank you that you are our provider and even, even our friend in Jesus Christ. And so we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.